It's Thursday, January 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In some grocery stores around the country, we are again seeing empty shelves. Some of the reasons remain the same as early in the pandemic, others have changed slightly. The Omicron surge, coupled with labor shortages, is making it difficult to keep things stocked. Supply chain issues in other countries are affecting us, and more people are eating at home. Laura Riley, business a food reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for What to Know. Next, the head of human resources at your place of work could be some of the most important people as we face constantly changing guidelines when it comes to the pandemic. They are key figures in setting new policy on mask wearing, testing, and vaccine mandates, and have had to quickly become experts on public health. Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times, joins us for all the new complexity brought to the world of HR. Finally, there are a lot of unexpected ways that children change their parents. There is a growing body of research that shows that a child's behavior has a much stronger influence on their parents' behavior than the other way around. It's a phenomenon called bi-directional parenting. Melissa Hagenboom, science journalist at the BBC and author of The Motherhood Complex, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My guess is that a lot of parts of the country, those Lunchables and those kinds of things are sold out because all of a sudden parents had to provide breakfast, lunch, dinner for for kids that they didn't anticipate. Joining us now is Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Oh, happy to be here. Well, pandemic life has been a series of never ending disruptions that's going to continue on. Obviously, this year we're seeing the surge of the Omicron variant and all the disruptions that it's causing there. You know, a lot of people are just getting infected, having to call out sick of work, all this. But uh, another thing we're seeing is, you know, some more uh, grocery store shelves that are empty, kind of reminiscent of a very early pandemic. And all through last year, we saw a, a lot of disruptions. Supply chain issues were a huge thing. But there's some four main reasons right now why it's happening all over again. Let's start with Omicron. I mean, that's one of the big things that's happening. Yeah. So we have this huge surge, which has affected Grocery store workers, truckers, we're about 80,000 truckers down right now. And, you know, some of that is the great resignation or the big quit, whatever you're calling it. So in almost every sector, employers are having a hard time keeping enough workers. And now you add to this this huge explosion of uh, infection. And, you know, these people are not necessarily super sick, but they're calling out of work for five days, however long. And a lot of them can't get their hands on rapid tests. So there's an impediment there to get them back in the in the building, in the office, in the in the grocery store because of that. So Omicron is is wreaking havoc. I mean, some of the CEOs I spoke with said they have more absenteeism now than at any point during 2020. One of the other things that we're seeing a lot of is the winter weather. So that's obviously puts a big hamper on a lot of things. Sure. So we had the mid-Atlantic region saw some punishing storms, the Pacific Northwest. So we've we really seen a number of parts of the country that have been affected by winter weather. We saw those pictures on I-95 of those you know miles and miles of cars stuck for 24 hours. Well, a fair number of those were tractor trailers full of food on their way to grocery stores. So we're seeing shortfalls there. You know, it impacts getting food from ports. So imported food getting from ports to you know intermodal. So onto train containers, and then from there into the trucking world, most food gets to grocery stores via truck. So if you have enormous impediments along major thoroughfares like I-95, that's going to slow some things down. 
You made mention also uh, school delays and closing and going back to remote learning in a lot of cases. You know, this also has an effect on families and the way they buy food. So you have uh, kids at home more often that, you know, they're going to stock up on more things. So leaving a little bit of less inventory for other people. That's another thing that the schools keep impacting daily life in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. So by the end of last week, there were more than 5,100 schools temporarily pushing off, you know, reconvening in person. And obviously, every single parent then has to provide those meals for those kids. So that's a pivot. I mean, my guess is that a lot of parts of the country, those Lunchables and those kinds of things are sold out because all of a sudden parents had to provide breakfast, lunch, dinner for for kids that they didn't anticipate. So, yes, that's another impediment. And and some of those workers now have kids at home and are unable and, you know, you can't find childcare on the fly. So they may be calling in sick to work because of that. Supply chain issues continue to be a huge thing, but now we're feeling the effects of supply, uh, supply chain issues from other countries and things that we import from them. Sure. So, you know, we've talked a lot in the past few months about shipping container backup in California and Louisiana, but some of this now in terms of imported food, and that can be finished food or ingredients that go into other foods, a lot of that now is impacted by manufacturing plants closing because of Omicron surges in other places. So if China has a, you know, no COVID hard and fast rule right now, that is really impacting manufacturing. I mean, the UK, there's a lot of disruption there. So some products may be delayed for a significant amount of time because of those manufacturing closures. And finally, I mean, one of the other big reasons why you're seeing a lot more uh, shelves empty at the grocery store is uh, pretty simple. More people are just eating at home, especially coming off of the holidays when people generally eat at home more. You know, we're talking about Omicron, people not maybe being a little hesitant to go out just so they don't want to catch anything. You know, a lot of people are just hitting the grocery stores even more because they're eating at home. Yeah, I looked at open table data and Yelp data and those kinds of things mid-December, and there was a significant dip in consumer, you know, attendance and reservations, et cetera, at restaurants. And there's just a growing consumer hesitancy about dining in. And, you know, some parts of the country, you can still get an outdoor table, but that's not a lot of places, right? I mean, just the weather doesn't accommodate that. So you saw this shift back towards dining at home. And then another thing to consider is in the month of December, obviously it's holidays, but for all of us who once again, were deciding, okay, I can't go to a Broadway show. I'm not taking that trip. It's imprudent to hop on a plane. People may be rewarding themselves or treating themselves with a splurge. So, you know, sometimes that's, okay, kids, we're having lobster tonight or we're doing something like that. So we saw an 8% increase in grocery store sales in December relative to last year. So some of the shortfalls that we're seeing was kind of exuberant spending in the month of December. Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. An HR director have that to the kind of upteenth degree because they're really suddenly charged with keeping their entire company healthy and right. safe and comfortable in the workplace. Joining us now is Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, you wrote an interesting article about kind of the changing needs within companies. And uh, I love the headline, 
your head of HR is now basically the school nurse. And in so many ways, it's so true right now. Uh, you know, we're seeing companies, businesses, everyone really navigating a bunch of different things, changing guidelines from the government with regards to whatever it is, masks, vaccines, all that, and changing guidelines within the companies, changing like guidelines with the government. It's very confusing. And, you know, in a lot of places, you know, the first person you go ask now is the HR person, you know, give us some guidance on this, set the rules and the parameters for us. So Emma, tell us a little bit more about it. Right. Well, I think we're seeing this effect in a lot of parts of work and life in the pandemic, which is just that in order to go about your day to day life now and in order to go about your routine, you have to almost act like an amateur epidemiologist because you're constantly navigating. How do I keep myself safe? How do I keep those around me safe? And HR directors have that to the kind of upteenth degree because they're really suddenly charged with keeping their entire company healthy and safe and comfortable in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, we had, I work at a a, a news radio station in Los Angeles, KFI Radio, and uh, we have a newsroom, we have a bunch of offices, studios, everything, and there was a big discussion about what was going on in our newsroom. You know, we have cubicles set up in there, and the rules were, you know, if you're in your office, you don't necessarily have to wear a mask, And, and I think people were carrying that to the cubicle section, but people brought up the issue, you know, we kind of didn't know how to answer it. First people we went to was HR. Please clarify all of this. And this is kind of what's happening everywhere. You know, you it's hard to make those finite decisions. You go to HR, help us get the guidance going. Exactly. And I think for HR, it just means that they have a, a myriad more responsibilities. They're oftentimes in charge with actually making the vaccine requirements for a company. They're in charge of reviewing the request for exemptions from those requirements. They're in charge of ordering masks and getting people set up to work from home. So it's a whole new list of responsibilities. And oftentimes those touch on a lot of areas of public health expertise that someone who's running HR might not necessarily have, but all of a sudden has to get caught up on. You made mention in the article, a lot of HR professionals that you spoke to really do look to CDC guidance when they make a lot of these decisions. You know, where else are they going to look but some other medical professionals they might know, but the ultimate line is stuff coming down from the CDC. Exactly. I think a lot of them are relieved to at least be able to point to what public health authorities and government agencies are saying are the requirements because it gives them a little bit of cover and they're just implementing the policies that are being directed toward them. They're not necessarily having to come up with it all on the fly. One of the things we're experiencing right now is a lot of disruption in return to office plans. You know, after the new year, a lot of companies were really ready to make that move back to in-person stuff. But, you know, the rise of the Omicron variant, a lot of uh, surging cases really put a slowdown on a lot of those plans. And HR professionals Uh, you know, undoubtedly stressed about all of this, about all the changing stuff. Uh, That was one of the things that the HR pros that you talked to were talking about, just kind of the, the added stress of what's going on. Exactly. I think it's a lot of pressure on people when they are all of a sudden charged with, first of all, figuring out how to keep their companies safe and figure out when it's safe to get back to the office, but also charged with figuring out how to communicate those policies and communicate the safety guidelines to their workforce, because I think people are not going to come back unless they feel safe and unless they feel cared for. And it's really up to HR to make sure that that is taken care of. You're trying to balance that safety for the company and all, 
but there's people on both sides, right? There are those that want to be vaccinated and, and want the people around them to also be vaccinated. There's those that uh, maybe don't want to get the vaccine. And you really have to find a, a policy that fits everywhere. Exactly. I spoke with an HR director in South Florida who said that he estimated that about one third of his staff was not fully vaccinated yet. And that actually a lot of them were opposed to the vaccine or viewed a vaccine mandate as an intrusion. So he had to figure out how do I talk to those employees? How do I communicate to those employees while also communicating to the other two thirds of the organization that will only feel safe if there's a vaccine mandate in place? What do you see? What do these HR professionals you spoke to see in the near future with all this stuff? I mean, as I mentioned, everything constantly changing, coronavirus sticking around a lot longer than most people had hoped. And this has just rolled up into the new set of their job parameters, really. I think a lot of them um, are leaning into the unpredictability of the moment at this point, And they're realizing maybe it doesn't make sense to set hard and fast return to office dates. Maybe it makes sense to communicate a little bit more uncertainty to their staff. And I think others are feeling a bit reassured that for as much as we do feel uncertain about the future, we also do have a lot more information at our disposal now about what works and particularly vaccines and testing. And that testing is especially going to be a really key tool as we're seeing with the Omicron variant to make sure that we know that when people are coming back to the office, that it's it's actually safe for them to do so. Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Like if you're trying to create a perfect piano player who's going to learn to read really early on, that's not necessarily in the child's interest. So understanding what their interests are and responding to that accordingly is going to make them happier it might cause less antagonism and therefore make you uh, happier in the process as well. Joining us now is Melissa Hagenboom, BBC science journalist and author of The Motherhood Complex. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Pleasure to be here. You wrote an interesting article about the unexpected ways that children change their parents. You know, the conventional thinking is that you have so much control over your kids and they respond to you. But there's a growing body of scientific research that's showing that You know, a lot of times the kids might have more of an effect on you and your behavior just by a matter of responding to them, how they react to you. And it might be changing the way you act a lot more. So, Melissa, help us walk through some of this. What are we looking at? Yeah, sure. So if you speak to anyone who has more than one child, you'll often hear them say that their two children are so different, despite the fact that, you know, you probably parent both childs roughly the same, you know, same household, same environment. And that's why... A geneticist I spoke to said parents of one child are environmentalists. They think, oh, we're shaping the child, the environment shapes them as well. Parents of two children are geneticists. So they say that they notice very early on that a child's temperament is hugely different from one child to the other. And what works for child one might definitely not work for child two, which means you literally have to change how you respond to that child. One might be more compliant, one might be more boisterous. And so you have to maybe tone down the way you speak to them to get them to listen to you. So there's a term called bi-directional parenting that basically, you know, says that we influence the kids. Obviously, the kids influence us back in that same way. Uh, Help explain that a little bit more. 
we as adults think we often are the authority and obviously we know what's right or wrong. But actually, it's easy to forget that children have their own sense of agency too. So just because we know that you can't go outside and barefoot in winter, for a two-year-old, that's their reality and they really want to do that. And so once you understand or once you reframe your mindset and think, right, right, okay, they have their own sense of sets and desires, however irrational it may be. So it's up to me to find a way to work with them to help them understand and make the situation less stressful because the last thing you want is a, a shouting match or a kind of wrestle to get out the door in the morning. So you, you often find that as a parent, you have to actually accept this and tweak your strategies, even if you know that, you know, you're in the right to, um, you know, align with them. Tell me a little bit about some of the studies that are being done on this, on bi-directional parenting. There was one large study that had over a thousand children and their parents, and they kept touching in with them over the course of a few years. So how did that work out? Yes, yeah, so this was a super interesting study, and it was a longitudinal one. That just means they follow up children over time. So they asked them early on, oh, do you think, how much influence do you think you have over your children? And parents tended to think they had quite a lot of influence over the children. But when they dug deeper and asked what kind of aspects of the day-to-day life they think their children might be playing a role in, they actually noticed that children that were displaying challenging behavior, parents were actually starting to withdraw more and became more authoritarian. And that means like strict and cold. So if you if you recall yourself growing up and think about the way you were parented, if you had a strict parent, that may be because of the way you behaved rather than the parent <laughs> right. being naturally strict. But it kind of goes both ways, right? So if an adolescent then continues to behave in a challenging way, that parenting becomes harsher and the adolescent might become more challenging over time. And so that, that's why it's so important to notice these effects and notice that a child's temperament is actually impacting how you respond to them and that not everything will work. So being really strict with one child might be great and then you're, like less, you're less likely to be stressed or strict later on if they keep listening. But right. if they don't carry on with that really strict, rigid approach, then both of you will kind of clash even more. Uh, so it's really interesting to see when these studies follow up children over time that you can actually see that play out. Why it's so interesting to kind of see these, these studies play out. And, and to your point about realizing what's going on, it helps break those cycles, right? You don't want to get caught up in these cycles where there's so much negativity going around. There's got to be a better way. And obviously everybody kind of has to acknowledge what's going on about how much children are affecting the parents. And acknowledging it is the key thing and realizing that it is really stressful. Like it is really stressful when someone is screaming in your face. Like it literally, like neuroscientists don't have done research on this. It makes your brain go into flight or fight mode because it's not natural to be screamed at. Whereas when we step back, a, you know, an hour or so later, we think, well, actually, you know, children's brains aren't developed yet. They don't know how to reduce that natural impulse. I mean, all of us know that if you're in a really frustrating situation, internally you might be screaming. Children haven't learned to prevent themselves doing that yet. But it, it helps knowing it on a grander sense as well that, you know, like your children aren't going to turn out exactly how you want to. And actually trying to shape them could lead to more anxiety for your child and then yourself later on. Like if you're trying to create a perfect piano player who's going to learn to read really early on, that's not necessarily in the child's interest. So understanding what their interests are and responding to that accordingly is going to make them happier. It might cause less antagonism and therefore make you uh, happier in the process as well. So it's like day to day, you can see it, you know, affecting your stress levels, but long term, it could actually make the family more harmonious. Melissa Hagenboom, BBC science journalist and author of The Motherhood Complex. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.